Hello, and welcome to our Stepping Stones podcast, supporting Americans with each step of their unique journey in the UK. I'm your host for today, Scott Barber, partner at Buzzacott, and I'm joined by... George Mitchell, a partner at Forsters in the private client team. Uh, Lucy, an associate at Forsters, also in the private client team. Martin Scullion, Buzzacott, partner. In this episode, we'll discuss moving to the UK And to get started, let's share the story of our client, Bill. Bill is a US citizen with a love of travel and a career drive has led him to plan a move to the UK. He has asked his employer about the possibility of relocating on a secondment and so is looking into a UK work visa. If that is not an option, Bill will become an entrepreneur and set up his own company. In either case, Bill is seeking advice on his immigration and personal tax as he's been made aware of the complexities of expatriate tax and benefits of planning ahead by his friends already in the UK. So, step one, applying for a visa. Lucy, what are the visa options available for someone moving to the UK on a secondment from an existing employer? Well, I think the first uh, point to note is that um, Bill may not initially be aware that he needs a visa. Um, A lot of US citizens are under the misconception that they can work and live in the UK freely and that's because they can travel here for up to six months at a time without a visa. So it's really important that he's made fully aware that he cannot use that to work in the UK. And we've actually been seeing some clients be told at the UK border that they're overusing that exemption and they could risk being turned away. So first step, make sure he gets one. Um, And the first option for him, if he's planning to work in the UK, is the skilled work visa. At Forsters, we don't tend to advise directly on these because our focus is advice on for high net worth individuals. And what tends to happen in this situation is the employer will manage the work visa uh, for the employee. But I'll cover it in broad terms because it is something that clients ask about. So broadly, the employer would need to apply to the Home Office to become a sponsor. Bill would need to be working in an eligible occupation. So those tend to be more skilled managerial positions or above. And he would need to meet a minimum salary requirement. And that is set by the government. Um, And this is a good option if, if Bill is going to be working. Um, It would be granted for five years, and he could really come and go freely. But the downside is that it really is contingent on his employment. So if he wanted to move jobs later down the line, uh, he would need to move to another sponsoring employer, and that can be quite challenging. Um, And certainly with the coronavirus pandemic, we've seen clients become quite concerned about the stability of their jobs with redundancies and things. Um, So... This would be a good option if he's really confident and secure in his job long term. But if he thinks that that might not be the case, he could consider some other options, I think. Okay. And um, if the employment um, is not an option, what uh, what avenues might be available if Bill wants to come to the UK and perhaps set up his own company um, uh, as an alternative to an employment arrangement? Yeah, so as an entrepreneur, he's got a couple of options. Um, so the first one is what's known as the startup visa, and that's really for individuals who aren't yet experienced um, in setting up their own business. They're really starting out and want to do so in the UK. 
Um, the alternative, if he's more experienced, is the innovative visa. And the broad requirements for these are quite similar. So Bill would need to uh, have an endorsing body support his business. He would need to show that it's innovative, viable and scalable. Um, and then that endorsing body would sort of support his application. One of the practical considerations of that is that they may want some kind of stake in his business, so some kind of economic rights going forward, and that might not be appealing to him. But if he's comfortable with that, that's an option. Um, and the startup visa would be granted for two years, and that can't be renewed. So it's really a stepping stone into the UK. Whereas the innovator visa, that's a three-year term, and he could continue to renew that. So if he was continuing to grow his business and just wanted to stay in the UK to do so, he could continue to renew every three years. And ultimately, he's got uh, options for indefinite leave to remain down the line, which I think we're going to talk about a bit later. Okay. And finally, if neither of those two options is appealing, either in employment or being active in his own business, I understand there are various types of investor visas that he might apply for. W what are the criteria for those types of visas? Yeah, so the investor visa um, is something that we advise on most commonly. It tends to be really appropriate for a lot of clients um, who have sufficient funds available. So Bill would need at least £2 million, um, and he'd have need to have had that in his control, um, and he would need to put it in a regulated bank in the UK. And he'd need to do that before he applies for his visa. And essentially, if he has those funds available and he opens that account, um, he will qualify for the investor visa, which would be granted for uh, just under three and a half years. Um, and it's a really good option because he can work in the UK for most jobs. There are a couple of odd exceptions, so he can't be a doctor, dentist or sports person, but assuming none of those apply, um, he can work freely, he can come and go as he pleases, he can study if he wants. There's no restrictions on employment or setting up his own business if he did want to do that. Um, and once he's coming towards the end of that initial term, he can also apply to extend his visa. So he would need to show that he'd invested that two million, at least two million, uh, into qualifying investments. So broadly that's um, stocks or loan uh, into UK trading companies, so active trading companies. And as long as he's done that and maintained that for two years, sorry, for the full uh, period of his visa, he can then extend for two years. And he can continue to make that extension indefinitely. So he's got the option to apply for indefinite leave to remain in future. But if he just wants that freedom, he can just keep renewing his visa. And that gives him a lot of flexibility. Okay, very good. And, and finally, with, with all of these options, um, I think people are always surprised at how long these things can take. What sort of time frame would you n normally recommend that people look to to have the visa in place before they arrange to move here? Uh, and what's the quickest they can do it? So I would say the bare minimum um, that you really want is three months. Um, and there are options for sort of fast-tracking the uh, visa being granted. So for all of these, the applicant would need to attend a uh, biometrics appointment. So that's fingerprints, uh, facial recognition, photographs, all of that. Um, and for some visas, you can get a decision within five working days 
from that appointment. But it's not always available, and especially with the coronavirus pandemic, that op- option has been curtailed in a lot of cases. So I would always say the earlier the better. And especially for the initial visas, I think clients often underestimate the documents they need to get in place and how long that can take. So things like setting up a bank account as a someone who's not in the UK with a UK um, entity sort of establishment, that can take some time, especially if they don't have an existing relationship. And with some visas, um, so for example, the spouse visa, which we haven't touched on, but it's one where um, you would need an overseas criminal record check as well. And that depends on each country. Um, So that can take some time. So I would really say the longer the better. Six months is a good ballpark. If you came to us at three, we could help. Um, But please try not to leave it any later than that. Okay, thank you very much. One of the things Bill will need to be aware of as a U.S. citizen is that all U.S. citizens are subject to worldwide tax, regardless of where in the world they are they are resident. So potentially, at the same time, uh, he'll be subject to U.S. tax rules, but when he moves to the U.K., he'll also be subject to U.K. tax rules, and of course this can get very, uh, very complex. So, uh, Martin, um, what is your experience with that transition and the complexities that 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 brings ideally it's um bill should get advice before he actually moves over to the uk so it's not always the case that this happens but um for tax planning reasons it's it's um always useful for him to to get advice before he actually um moves um and most americans i think are aware um of their continued u.s obligation i think you know, probably from an education perspective, I imagine that they're told, I don't know what your experience with that, Scott, is, but I imagine they're told that you have to file um, just for being a citizen. Um, but, you know, when when they move to, to the UK, you know, you're looking at federal advice, UK tax advice, and potentially some state tax advice, depends on what state they're moving from. Um, and it's important for them to understand, you know, when they come to the UK, when do they, when do they become UK resident? But do they actually break residence in the state they're moving from? Uh, and that can depend on whether they still have a footprint in that state, so potentially a property or something like that, where they still have their belongings and they're still living when when they when they're back in that in that jurisdiction. So, you know, I'm thinking of places like New York, for example, where you might continue to have residence there because of your your property and your and your ties to to New York. Um, so getting the right advice before you actually move, how, how do you break New York residents or state residents before you move to the UK can be important because if you're UK resident and state resident, you're paying extra tax um, that you might otherwise um, not incur. Um, but yeah, so it's, you know, you're, you're looking at um, your ties back to the, the, the home jurisdiction, um, but you're also looking at whether when you become UK resident, um, You've got the UK statutory residence test, which um, we can advise on and we can determine are you going to be resident in that tax year or is it going to be the next tax year or uh, non-resident or are you going to be part of your resident? There's split year rules that we need to consider as well. Um, and this can be important because once you understand when your resident date in the UK is, the planning kind of needs to happen before then. Um, you know, we can discuss that in a, 
um, a bit later after we, we go through domicile. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think, again, we'll spend a lot of this series talking about the federal rules because that is, you know, the more expensive tax um, and so forth. But, but you're quite right that people need to appreciate that where they're coming from in the U.S. matters very much. It's quite straightforward. If you're from Florida or Texas, these are states that don't happen to have an income tax regime. It's reasonably complex. If you're from one of the northeastern states, I would say in particular, uh, and also California. So that that's a piece uh, that um, uh, mustn't be overlooked. And Martin, as you indicated, it's also quite relevant um, what their plans are in terms of retaining property in those states in terms of a home and whether or not the family is moving with the individual. That can have a major impact on, on, on the outcomes. Uh, and of course, the worst outcome from our standpoint, if someone winds up being resident both in the UK and in the state they came from, um, they could wind up with quite a higher combined rate of, of tax. Um, you, you've mentioned there uh, a domicile and its importance to, to uh, tax here in the UK in particular. Um, George, I wonder if you might just guide us through that and, and perhaps also uh, bear in mind that what an American might think of as a domicile is perhaps a different concept from what yes. the UK thinks of as domicile. Sure. So um, if I just start with the UK concept of domicile, it's an, another factor like residence which determines an individual's tax treatment. Uh, and it can be relevant for income tax, capital gains tax that we have in, over in the UK and inheritance tax. And it is a little bit um, different from the US concept but there is some similarity in the sense that with the UK one, what we're really thinking about is where someone intends to remain permanently. So where's their ultimate home going to be? And everyone starts off with a domicile of origin, and typically that's the father's one. And it's worth bearing in mind, um, as with the US, domicile is linked in a federal system to a particular state, so that could be New York or California or something, and over here um, it would be England. And then um, layered on top of that, uh, if someone moves to the UK uh, and they decide, hopefully after a little bit of time and after they've obtained some advice, um, that actually they do ultimately want to just stay here, then they could acquire what's known as a domicile of choice and um, that can have some uh, repercussions tax-wise. And then on top of that, so that's the sort of general law principle of domicile, and then on top of that we have a tax uh, rule as well, which deems someone to be domiciled in the UK if they've been resident here for at least 15 out of the last 20 tax years. And that then means, it's a bit like um, acquiring a domicile of choice over here, it then means that they're fully exposed to um, UK tax across the board once they're deemed domiciled. So the reason we think about someone's domiciled position, if we um, step back a little bit, and as Martin will come on to, is if we're thinking about their income and capital gains tax position just from a UK perspective, then if they're able to say that they're um, non-domiciled, uh, in the UK and 
this is before they've been here for 15 tax years, then they can claim the remittance basis. And that is a regime which allows um, someone to pay tax only by reference to their income and capital gains that arise in the UK. And as long as they don't uh, remit, so bring in income and gains that um, come to them outside the UK, then they um, won't pay tax on that, at least for the first seven tax years. So that can be relevant for a US citizen if they're um, thinking for the first seven years, actually, do I um, want to keep my compliance possibly a little bit simpler um, and leave my uh, non-UK income and gains outside the UK um, claim the remittance basis and not have to disclose all of this information about those income and gains to HMRC. Um, it's not quite like the IRS, but um, some people may not want to disclose everything to HMRC. And there are also certain types of investments like municipal bonds and US mutual funds that don't have reporting status, where um, actually claiming the remittance basis means that you're you're not paying the higher of the effective tax rates because the UK taxes both of those sorts of investments at a higher rate than the US does. So it's those sort of differences where claiming the remittance basis may be advantageous. Uh, and we'll come on to, um, possibly at, later on in the podcast, talking about some of the inheritance tax implications of domicile and thinking about um, when someone's moving over to the UK, uh, if we just touch on the the basic premise that if you're non-domiciled, then generally um, you are only subject to inheritance tax on assets located in the UK. Uh, but if you're staying in the UK, you might want to think about um, putting some of your assets in a trust to protect them from inheritance tax. So. Those are some of the considerations for domicile. Yeah. Um, and, and just on that, before we leave the subject of, of, of trusts, um, obviously trusts are used extensively in both jurisdictions, um, but I think Americans tend to be surprised at how highly formalized trusts are still regarded in the UK. Um, and perhaps we're used to using grantor trust as virtual piggy banks. Yes. Um, w w what have you seen in that space, and, and what is it um, that Americans need to understand about any trust that they already have before coming to the UK, uh, what that trust does for them, and who the trustees of that trust might be? Yes. Uh, well, if they're thinking about moving to the UK, then you're absolutely right. We uh, would want to see what trusts they already have in place. So as you're saying, individuals quite often have revocable grantor trusts set up as a piggy bank uh, to hold assets rather than necessarily leaving everything to fall um, under their US will, because I understand probate in the US isn't the easiest and takes a bit of time. So you quite often have a revocable grantor trust as that piggy bank. But then we have to think about, well, how's that trust, as you're suggesting, 
going to be treated over here. Um, and there are two ways which it can be uh, regarded. So it can be seen as a bare trust, so a nominee arrangement, transparent for the individual. It's effectively a bit like what you're saying, a piggy bank. It's just their assets and they're taxed on the income and gains as they arise. Uh, the alternative is that it may be seen as a proper trust, so a settlement over here. And those two options have very different tax treatments here. So it's it's critical that we review the trust. And, and Martin, along the same lines of things that people should do or timeframes that are helpful for them, we, we talked a bit about domicile and the remittance basis. Um, in terms of the remittance basis and what income is not subject to tax in the UK, um, can you walk us through the management side of that? Um, because people have to appreciate once that income has escaped tax for the tax year involved, they don't then want to subsequently somehow bring that money into the UK. Uh, and it's very important to understand that we don't have any similar concept to this in the US that once you know an item of income or gain goes into an account, the H HMRC actually has a methodology that says we can look at the account and tell you where everything came from and depending on what you do with it, if you bring that money to the UK, even five years later, at that point, it becomes subject to tax and you could wind up with a double tax charge. How do you manage that? And uh, maybe it, it's useful for people to understand in terms of bringing money to the UK if they want to, there actually will never be a better time to bring money to the UK than in the time period before they actually become resident here. Yes, yeah, so it's important um, right at the outset to understand that yeah the best time to bring to remit the money is is um is before you've actually became resident um because you've not actually um by that point um generated any income in the u.s that would be taxable so everything at, the, at that point of day one when you when you move to the uk will be what, what we call clean capital um so it's important to to know that if there's money required in the uk over you know your your your, your period that the, the you're here, um, you know that that point is a good point to bring the money into the UK. Um, in terms of managing going forward, if there's you want to remit in the future, you need to preserve any clean capital you have. So any any money that you've generated pre-residence is clean capital. So you know having setting up bank accounts that preserve that and don't taint that that money um, will be important. It's it's um. Sometimes difficult, difficult to achieve that with U.S. banks because the segregation of income and gains, you know, it's hard to for them to understand the concept of U.K. Um, taxation and remittances. So it's not always done properly in the U.S. Um, so you may want to, if you look to manage it properly, um, look at um, offshore accounts in places like the Jersey and, and Guernsey, um, where, which are in the U.K. banking system but it's not a remittance if it goes into a Jersey or a Guernsey bank account. Um, but they would be able to manage the and segregate income gains and, and clean capital um, so that you're able to preserve that clean capital when you need it um, to prevent it, the income and gains being remitted uh, and being taxable. The other thing I'd mention for Americans is that obviously you're still taxed in the US on the income and gains. So, you know, the residence basis is an option. You don't you you don't need to claim the residence basis. It's a year by year um, decision. 
and in certain cases it might be you know some Americans might be on the arising basis and be taxed in the UK on worldwide income um, and you know the, the use of foreign tax credits in that situation um, making sure that the UK tax is paid um, you know in the same year that the income is generated so that it can offset the US tax that that's quite important so it depends on the client situation and, and, and how much you know they need in the UK how much um, income they generate offshore um, so it's discussion you have with every client and it's all you know can be different um, outcome each time um, yeah, and I think um, Martin's really clearly covered the importance of maintaining that clean capital. And that's actually really important for the immigration advisors to bear in mind as well. Um, I mentioned that the investor visa is often the most appropriate choice for many clients. And as I said, that will require at least £2 million to be brought into the UK. So it's really important that ideally that's brought in um, before the individual becomes a UK tax resident to avoid any possible remittances or failing that that it's funded with clean capital and um, so it's just highlighting how important it is for the immigration advisors and the tax advisors to be aligned on that. Yeah and I think it's important to say as well you know, in terms of tax residents um, there are some fairly bright line rules around what you know what makes you resident in the UK it's largely driven by your days of presence in the UK combined with factors such as do you have family who is also resident do you have a property available to you do you have an employment in the UK um, but it's important for people moving to the UK to understand as well that if they've spent significant time in the UK in the last couple of years you know the, the calculation is cumulative um, so if they've been here for other purposes, even if they weren't necessarily even thinking of being resident, that those days might tally against the, you know, the date at which they're deemed to be resident for UK purposes. Uh, and that's something that's very important uh, in, a, in a lot of these tests and how you're treated for tax purposes in the UK. A key consideration is always when did they become resident. Um, and that's something that you'll want to understand if you're planning to come to the UK is when will you become resident um, and when will you break residence with perhaps the state you're moving from. And those are all very important considerations because you don't want to leave that decision up to the mercy of what a tax investigator uh, thinks. They, they will want you to be resident from the earliest possible moment so they can start, they can start taxing you. Um, George, before we move on from the pre-planning side of things, are there any legal issues that Americans moving to the UK ought to ought to think about and get advice on? So, Bill, we, we've talked about the possibility that Bill is an employee, so um, he may want to get his employment contract. We don't know whether he's going to continue to be employed by the US entity or he's moving to a contract with a UK subsidiary or something. Uh, so he may want to get his contract reviewed. And if he's going on secondment, it's especially important for him to think about, well, does my contract allow me to go back to the role that I'm coming from in the US? So there's those sort of considerations, and our employment lawyers can help with those. Um, and just touching on one other thing that he may want to think about if he's holding property through an LLC or he's got interest in an LLC, the UK and US do treat LLCs 
uh, differently for tax purposes. So quite often LLCs are transparent in the US, uh, whereas HMRC at least regard them as being effectively companies over here, so opaque. And if he's receiving income from an LLC, that may be something he wants to have a word with us about if there's anything he can do on that front. Um, just moving beyond that, now we, we mentioned early about the difficulties of setting up a bank account. Um, I think we also see uh, a similar issue when people are moving to the UK, uh, not necessarily in terms of buying, but in terms of just renting a property, renting a flat perhaps, or renting a house, um, that A, they don't have a bank account, and B, they don't have, have much of a credit history. Um, is that something you've seen in, in practice, and how do clients sort of work around those those issues when they first come to the UK? So I think if it's uh, difficulties with credit, sometimes it's um, saying to the landlord, okay, I, maybe I don't have this credit history that you want, but I'm willing to pay six months, say, or have many months of rent upfront. Yeah. I've got the cash to do it, so I'll just pay that. So there are ways around that, possibly. So step three is is really arriving in the UK, and I think at this uh, stage it would be helpful to just think about some of the wider implications, perhaps for Bill's family. Um, so this is the phase at which um, uh, you know kids will be starting in in new schools, depending on where they live. Um, it might be an international school, or they they perhaps will uh, go to a school uh, in in the UK that that's um, a UK based school. Uh, but that's obviously a big shift. Uh, but Lucy, what about the basic issue? Uh, we've talked a lot about the visas for Bill as either an employee, an entrepreneur, or an investor. But what impact does that have potentially on a spouse uh, and and on minor children? What What's the basis of their right to live in the UK? So with the visas we've discussed, um, it's possible for Bill to bring in um, a spouse or a long-term partner and any minor children as his dependents. Um, for some of the visas, there are a few additional requirements, but they tend not to be too onerous. Um, and really, he is, he is free to do that. The only thing to bear in mind, and we'll kind of go on to this a bit later, I believe, is that if his family also want to end up staying in the UK, they will need to meet the residence requirements for applying for definite leave to remain and potentially citizenship as well. So we mentioned schooling. Um, if, for example, he were to arrive in the UK with a child ahead of time to start school, but his spouse were to join later um, to tie up perhaps things in the US, it's just important to bear in mind that they then might have differing day counts. And that could be something that had to be considered later down the line if he decided to stay. Yeah, and I think that's a really important uh, administrative point that someone moving to the UK will want to be aware of. Um, for various reasons, both tax but also the visas, they will regularly be asked about the number of days they spent in the UK, the number of days they spent perhaps in the US, uh, and even within in individual states within the US perhaps, uh, but also foreign uh, time that, that they spend, whether on work or, or holiday. So they will want to come up with some sort of system um, for demonstrating where they've been basically 365 days out of 
the yeah. year. Uh, and I understand, Lucy, this question comes up again when they come to apply to renew visas or extend them. What, what's that process like? Exactly. So if we take the initial visa uh, in the first instance, that can be particularly challenging because um, for for some cases, so for example, George and I had a client who was actually applying for a, a spouse visa, but it was a US client, and he needed to be able to explain his traveled for the last 10 years and that is not something that people habitually keep track of um so there's a bit of flexibility in sort of doing your best about collating that information but um any records uh, are really appreciated and going forward like you said once that visa is granted in terms of later down the line applying for definite leave to remain or citizenship you have to show um basically exactly where you've been whether that's in the UK or outside the UK for every single day of that period and that can be quite challenging so when we're advising clients we always will give them um, essentially a spreadsheet that they can fill in and that will keep track of their days for them um, especially because these absences are calculated on a rolling basis. So it used to be a bit easier, sort of you count every single 12 month period from when your visa is granted and make sure you're not out of the UK for a set number of days in that period. But now it's any 12 month period. So you have to sort of redo the calculation every day going back 12 months, um, which like you said is, is quite tricky. So what I would say is use technology to your advantage. Most people, uh, buy their sort of uh, travel tickets online, you know, keep a subfolder in your emails, just something where you know exactly where all that is. We can do the hard work for the client. Um, we're happy to sift through that and put that together, but it's just important that they are generally aware of the importance of keeping track and being aware of where they are during that period. Yeah. And I think it's interesting for, in a lot of ways, when uh, you come to the UK, and I moved to the UK t more than 20 years ago now, there, there's a lot about your sort of financial and administrative life you've got to do over again. We've talked about setting up bank accounts, um, finding a property to, to, to rent, um, but there's also things if you're staying longer term and you want to be able to drive, I mean, it's beyond the scope of this discussion, but at some point if you stay in the UK, I think longer than a year, uh, and you want to be able to drive here, you have to go sit a UK driving test, which uh, I've got to tell you, folks, is a lot more rigorous than most driving tests in, 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 in the US. Uh, and you've got to get used to driving on the wrong side of the road, uh, which, which takes, takes a while. Uh, Martin, just extending that, um, obviously on the tax side, uh, what are some basics that people should know about Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, which in the UK is the equivalent of the IRS? Um, what do they have to do to register with them, and what's what's the interaction going to be like? Yeah, I mean, most of the time when you, when the if Bill was to become resident in the UK, he, he's going to he's going to have to register to file under what's called self-assessment um, to file a tax return in the UK. Um, so, you know, we'll be able to, to get them registered um, and we can we can help them prepare a UK tax return. Um, it should be relatively straightforward if they're on the remittance basis and they're not remitting overseas income to the UK and then, you know, perhaps they have just UK sourced income from employment, self-employment, um, that sort of thing. 
um, to, to begin with. I mean, they might end up with investments in the UK that they have to report, um, particularly if they've got an investor visa, there might be some income generated uh, from that. Um, but you know, that, that should be relatively straightforward. I mean, and it'll be mainly, the main thing that we're looking at is making sure that any UK tax is paid in the year that the income is earned, which is usually straightforward for, for employed individuals because the tax comes off the, the pay slip and it's, uh, it's withheld. Um, whereas for self-employed, the onus is on you to, to pay your tax at the end of the tax year um, and then potentially pay payments on account, which are the equivalent of estimated payments in, in for the following tax year. Um, and I guess the, the one issue with self-employed is, you know, you might have to consider making an upfront tax payment um, in the calendar year that you, you're, you're resident in the UK to ensure that um, you know, there's no double taxation because the US um, work on a paid basis for foreign tax credit purposes. Um, the paid basis uh, works for for, for uh, UK residents. Um, there is an accrued basis, but that doesn't normally work for, for work well for UK residents. Um, so you look at it, any tax paid in the year can be offset on the the US tax returns. So for self-employed individuals, it, it's usually important to pay in advance. Um, so that's one thing. Um, the tax year end in the UK is the 5th of April, so you need to get used to, you know, the US being a calendar year, a bit of a difference in the information that you need to collect. Um, but, you know, that that will really be an issue once you're on the horizon basis. If you're on a remittance basis, you, it's only UK source income, so the, the statements you get are going to be UK tax year. Um, whereas if you start having to report all your US investment income in the UK, um, you know, it gets a bit tri more tricky get gathering information to, to be able to prepare a tax return. Um, but yeah, it's um, it becomes more complicated once you're on the horizon basis. Um, you know, the, you know, there's you know potential planning before you you go onto the horizon basis that you will you will probably want to to have. I think another area that's um, worth discussing is um, George when someone moves to the the UK uh, and they're going to be resident here for a period of time uh, in terms of legal documents we've talked a lot about trust but what about something as basic as their their will do they need a new will if they're coming to the UK what what's what do you see in that space yes that's a good question I think it's um, it depends as with anything uh, on the facts but if uh, we were talking about bill, buying a UK residential property. So if he owns, um, that's obviously located over here, and just thinking about the ease of dealing with probate, so um, the administrators dealing with his estate once he's passed on, then actually having a UK will that deals with his assets located over here uh, is going to help with that. And the reason for that is uh, if he, if we rely on a U.S. will, then we'll need an affidavit about foreign law, so we'll have to go off to a U.S. attorney uh, to get that, which, of course, we can do, but it adds to the costs uh, and time that it takes to deal with his estate. And the alternative, if you use the U.S. will as the primary document and apply for probate in the States... Uh, is you, you can get a court-exemplified copy of that U.S. will, and then we understand that the U.K. probate registry 
typically will accept that. But again, that's a timing consideration mm -hmm. because of the um, the timing it takes in the states, I understand, to get probate. So that's a good reason to have a UK will which deals with your uh, UK property over here. And when we're thinking about wills, uh, broadly, what we're trying to do is make the most of the exemptions in both jurisdictions and also um, make sure that we're deferring to the extent possible uh, tax in either jurisdiction until the second death. So um, if, if Bill is married or um, in a civil partnership, then we're trying to get the tax event to occur on the second death so that we can use um, the first death, we can do some planning after that to try and reduce uh, the ultimate tax bill. Yeah, and I think it's important to understand that um, if if Bill is not domiciled in the UK, he, he, you know, in terms of a UK estate problem, he sort of broadly has 15 years before he becomes, as we call it, deemed domiciled uh, in the UK. Uh, so really, at, at least in the early stages, yep. it's potentially just his real estate and perhaps some other UK assets that are in the UK net. But that, that can be planned for. Um, but again, he'll want to take advice in early stages to see what he needs to do to make sure that that's implemented correctly. Um, just to discuss the final step, which is staying in the UK longer term, uh, I have to say my experience, and Martin, I think our experience of most of our clients, uh, is I certainly came to the UK expecting to be here for two or three years, and 23 years later, I'm, I'm still here. And I think most of our clients would tell a similar story. Most people come here for a specific purpose, um, perhaps related to employment, related to family, perhaps related to, to education, and then something happens that causes them to stay. So, Lucy, in that circumstance where someone comes here and they've had a visa uh, of, of any sort um, that perhaps allowed them to come initially for two or three years, um, we've discussed they can renew it, but what if someone gets to the point of saying, I'm staying and I really don't know when I'm leaving. In fact, I may stay very long term. What what are their options then? Yeah, so that's the perfect time to consider indefinite leave to remain, um, or ILR, and more commonly known as uh, permanent residency. That's how we see clients refer to it. Um, and broadly speaking, um, Bill would be able to apply for this after he'd been resident for five years uh, under one of the other visas, or a combination of them. And he would need to uh, meets the absence requirements. So I touched on those earlier, that in sort of any 12-month period, he will have need to be um, not absent from the UK for more than 180 days. So if he meets that and the specific terms of the visa he's on, so that will vary slightly depending on which one he's in the UK on, he can then apply for indefinite leave to remain. And broadly speaking, that means he can stay in the UK indefinitely, move about freely, um, and he can retain that status as long as he's not absent from the UK for two years. So he can keep that um, on an ongoing basis. And then if he decides to make a more permanent step, he can then apply for British citizenship. So generally speaking, he'll have, need to have needed to have held 
ILR for 12 months and can then apply for citizenship. And there are, again, some more absence requirements. Um, one of the sort of key ones to bear in mind is that he will have needed to not be absent from the UK for more than 90 days in that last 12-month period. There are exceptions, so we've had some clients who've been able to have a bit more flexibility because of COVID. They haven't been able to be here for that entire period, but generally um, 90 days is your cap for being out of the country. Um, and then if those sort of requirements are met, um, Bill can become a naturalised British citizen. Um, and there are sort of tax implications of that. They're not um, completely linear. So unlike in the US, citizenship isn't an automatic connecting factor for tax purposes. So Bill can become um, a UK citizen and still be non-domiciled um, and sort of have that flexibility. But there has been sort of a shift in Home Office guidance. So it's long established in case law that citizenship is a connecting factor for domicile. So George mentioned domicile of choice. Acquiring citizenship here um, would be one sort of indicating factor that he had acquired that. But the Home Office has actually gone a bit further and their guidance to their caseworkers now says that if Bill were to apply for citizenship, he would need to confirm that he intends to have a, a home here, his principal home here in the UK. And that's not exactly the same as a permanent home for domicile. Um, but the Home Office does seem to be aligning those concepts. So they've sort of asserted in their guidance that um, if an individual is continuing to claim non-domiciled status, that might be grounds to refuse a citizenship application. And conversely, if they're granted citizenship, HMRC may be more inclined to make an inquiry into Bill's domicile position on the basis that he has citizenship. So this is just guidance. It can't change the common law position that citizenship is just one connecting factor but it's a trend sort of moving towards uh, being a bit firmer on that uh, from the government's perspective so it's something that bill should be made aware of if he does want to go down the citizenship route and uh, as a practical matter though as the uk has also on the tax side changed its rules to bring in the deemed domicile concept um how how interested are they going to be on the basis that if if you have a time frame that you become domiciled for tax purposes that's you know 15 years is is it's a long time in some ways and not very long in 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 others uh, is it something that we see them looking at particularly intensively so we haven't seen that much in practice yet but i mean one thing to bear in mind is that you could become a British citizen within generally around six years if you wanted to mm -hmm. um, and that's obviously you've still got a long time then before you yeah. become deemed domiciled so if for example you were to do some planning in that sort of second half uh, of that time period and that was for a particularly wealthy client that might raise some questions with HMRC so one practical step um, is actually to consider making any plans along those lines before acquiring citizenship? Yeah, I think it's it's one of these things that it's because it's based on court cases and 
you know, facts and circumstances around various court cases over the years. There's no statutory test on domicile, so you kind of, you know, you just need to sort of build up a, you know, a file of your connection back to the, your, you know, the US in this, in this uh, situation and, and to show that, you know, your intention is not to be in the UK permanently or indefinitely, which I think is one of the, um, you know, issues of becoming, um, factors of becoming UK domiciled under, um, by choice. So I think it's, um, it's having a domicile review and having sort of a, um, a file with all your connect connections to the US is probably quite important. Um, before you set up any exclusive property trust. So as our final step for this morning, um, can each of you just say a few words on the sort of professional advice that someone like Bill should seek and, and how your firm can, can help them? Yes, so um, at Forsters, we would help, as, I've, as we've sort of covered in this podcast, with Bill's estate plan and succession plan from a UK perspective. And there we're trying to navigate the um, the tax rules in the UK and the US. So we're English qualified lawyers and we can help on the UK side of things, but we're familiar with the uh, US aspects from advising on these sort of things for a number of years. And we would work together with a US attorney um, to help set up an estate plan and um, we would also work with uh, someone like Martin on the US UK tax side of things as well and then Lucy's part of our US UK connected team so in addition to um, your immigration advice Lucy you would also help me and other members of the team with the uh, sort of bills wills and various trusts and those sort of things so yeah, absolutely. And then on the immigration side, it really is just um, helping Bill through that process. There are a lot of uh, very specific requirements and the Home Office is very particular about how those requirements are met. Um, and it can be quite challenging to meet those, even in a professional context. So for an individual to try and do it without advice um, really would be very challenging. And then again, just as he wants to maintain his status, pointing out those sort of things that he's got to meet throughout the process, absences, any particular sort of tick boxes um, that he needs to meet throughout, so that if he ultimately wants to stay in the UK on the longer ter- in the longer term, he's really best placed to do that. Well, at Buzzercourt, we can help um, clients like Bill um, because we're dual qualified US, UK uh, tax advisors, so we can give joined up advice um, before he comes here and, and once he's here uh, you know because depends on what 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 happens what once he gets here and how, how his plans um, go ahead we also prepare US and UK tax returns so we can help him with that um, and um, you know it's I guess take a lot of the the pain away of, of, of trying to do it yourself or I guess in, in some cases some people use um, two different um, a US advisor and a, and a UK advisor to do the the tax returns, um, and sometimes it's not the, m- the most smoothest process if you're dealing with two advisors, um, but we can do it all, all here in, 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 at Bozicott. Uh Thanks to our speakers for joining us today, and thank you for tuning in. Plan your next step by taking a look at the other episodes in this podcast series covering the topics of business, property, children, and more. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. you.
This Stepping Stones podcast is brought to you by Buzzacott, a top 20 UK accountancy firm based in London, with a team in Hong Kong specialising in US and UK tax, financial planning, corporate business services and audit.